nation. Listen up. Hold on to your seats. Grab your girls. Grab your beers. Fasten your seatbelts. Because today is going to be a day unlike any other day. Uh, the days that you've had, today is that day. And you know what that day is? Today is today's boondoggle. That's right. When heavy metal touches down on the flat earth of boondoggle. <laughs> Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to this intro before the intro of our today's boondoggle radio show. Uh, as you know, we're a veteran-owned and operated podcast, and this has been an incredibly therapeutic journey for me as a veteran that struggles with PTSD and anxiety, just getting out and talking to people. But uh, it does cost us some money, so if you feel so obliged to donate to our GoFundMe, we have a GoFundMe under today's boondoggle. We also have a Venmo at today's boondoggle that you can donate to. Uh, our anchor sponsorship at anchor.fm forward slash today's boondoggle uh, any questions comments suggestions complaints you can email us at today's boondoggle at gmail.com and please follow us on our social media sites at, uh, at today's boondoggle on instagram facebook twitter all your uh, social media platforms as well as our youtube channel our rumble channel and our bit channel please follow subscribe comment and download and please consider checking out our sponsors. If you uh, support our sponsor, Dream Nutrition, you can receive 10% off your order by using the promo code BOONDOG10 at checkout. So Dream Nutrition, they're a veteran-owned and operated company as well. So please support them and receive 10% off using the promo code BOONDOG10. Thanks for your time and thanks for listening. The Pinnacle of Rock Festival in the United States. Sonic Temple Art and Music Festival returns to historic Crew Stadium with the biggest lineup ever to rock Columbus. Slipknot. Disturbed. Pantera. Limp Biscuit. Evanescence. Judas Priest. Stain. Rise Against. And the original Misfits, plus a day to remember. Falling in reverse, breaking Benjamin, 311, sleep to either in this moment. Faye, Cypress, Hill. Sum 41, Carrie King, Anthrax. And that's just the beginning. Over 120 bands, four days, and for the first time ever, a fourth stage to give you more metal, more rock, and more mayhem. May 16th through the 19th at Historic Cruise Stadium in Columbus, Ohio. Tickets on sale today at SonicTempleFestival.com. Yes, Kato Kalen listens to this all the time. Welcome.
to Heath. So one Heath, and you are listening to today's Boondoggle. Hey, what's up? It's John from Skillet, and you are listening to today's Boondoggle on Domain Cleveland Radio. Fasten your seatbelts. What's going on, everybody? It's Bill Bailey with today's Boondoggle. And a real quick housekeeping note, if you're watching us on YouTube or Odyssey or BitChute or Rumble, please hit that follow and subscribe button. And if you're listening to us on Spotify, Apple, Google, uh, whatever podcast platform you're utilizing, please hit that follow and subscribe button uh, so we can continue to bring you conversations like the one I'm about to bring you today. We are... uh, we're go- we're howling mad tonight, man, because I'm getting to talk with Larry the Wolf from the band Manimals. What's going hey, on, Larry? Hey, Bill. It's great to be with you here tonight at the Boondoggle. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah, man. I've been looking forward to it. Uh, you know, it's like, uh, you know, I've I've known of the legend Larry the Wolf, and you know, I, I've admired from afar. But uh, it was cool to like meet you in the flesh at, uh, at the Danzig show and, and, and talk with you. We have a lot of mutual friends in the music scene and, and I just, you know, I had to have you on, man. I, I have friends in the music scene. That's news to me. I had no idea. <laughs> Not many. Yeah, There's a few that like you and, and you know what, uh, the ones, well, the ones that do like you, their, uh, their, uh, word carries some weight with me. So, uh, you know, you got the right ones I like. Yeah, that's all that matters. That's that's very kind of you, Bill. I appreciate you. Yeah, it was great to uh, meet you in person at uh, uh, Danzig. I don't uh, I don't get out much because I don't like most stuff and I don't like most people. So uh, I uh, I don't venture out too often. But when I do, it's for special occasions. And that, of course, was my uh, my dear friend Sean Vanek plays at midnight, and Jamie at midnight, and the Iron Possessor, all the guys at midnight, are pals of mine. And they asked oh, me yeah, to please yeah. come down for that show. And it was uh, actually it was almost it was within one day of being exactly thirty nine years to the day of when uh, Sam Hain played Manimal Sam Hain at the old pop shop under the original Agora back in nineteen eighty four. And uh, Steve Zing was in the band at that time playing drums as well. So it was a chance. He's plays bass in Danzig now. So it was a chance for me to uh, connect with him after 39 years. Wow. That's awesome. Awesome to hear. Saw you and some other buddies down there. But I don't come out too often. It was great to meet you. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. And uh, 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 same here. But, uh, you know, usually when I have people on for the first time, I like to go and get a little background. So, do you remember originally what did you want to be when you grew up? Uh, huh. Let me think about this. Earliest, well, I was I was uh, one of the uh, horror kids, you know, with the uh, monster craze of the 60s and early 70s. So I was addicted to Aurora Monster Models and Famous Monsters of Filmland Magazine and watching uh, Chilla Theater uh, back east. I'm originally from New York uh, when I was a little kid and then moving out to Ohio, of course, the ghoul and the, the hula and the big chuck and all that were here on Friday and Saturday nights. But I was one of those monster kids. So, of course, uh, reading Famous Monsters magazine, uh, the, you know, my earliest heroes were Joe Namath, who I saw, saw play at uh, Shea Stadium in 1970, um, uh, Lon Chaney Sr., and Elvis Presley. Nice. <clears throat> And then, um, 
when was it that like uh you know like music caught your ear and who were some of your earliest influences well you know music i fell into a lot of things uh bill i i uh they find me more than i find them so music was kind of that way but you know i i'll i'll get into that but the earliest uh i remember my parents had terrible taste in music but my grandparents lived with me uh, we lived with us when we moved from the city i'm from the bronx and we moved out to new jersey and my uh my mother's uh mom and dad my italian grandparents moved out with us and my grandpa had great taste in music so he played mario lanza and stuff like that but he had a, a real affection for patsy cline and then my uncle uh up lived up the street and he was more like my older brother and he worked for gmac he would uh repo cars tough job in the city doing that in harlem in the bronx and uh he um he always then he moved his way up into finance but he always had the best cars he had an eight track and he would play elvis so I drive around with him and we'd listen to Elvis. Um, the earliest band I ever saw that had a big impact on me that I I that I I, I was really uh for whatever reason they caught my fancy was I was watching TV when I was little and back east there was a show called Out of Sight. So you're talking the late 60s, and it would have had I was probably six, seven years old, and they would play like psychedelic uh scenes like just weird moving colors psychedelic stuff mixed over go-go girls dancing to whatever current music was on and then they would have a band on there once in a while and i watched there's one band and of course i'm watching for the girls all wearing mini skirts and go-go boots they look like joey heatherton it was dynamite or ann margaret and uh they had a band on they're all wearing like revolutionary uh soldier outfits they're doing synchronized moves swinging the 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 necks of the guitar and bass up and down then there's the two guys are standing on top of the amps and they're playing garage rock. It was Paul Revere and the, and the Raiders. Because in there, every, everybody else looked like, you know, uh, either they look like hippies or they looked like, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, I love Creedence Clearwater Revival, but I don't want to, I don't want to look like them. Uh, <laughs> you know, so, so when I saw Paul Revere and the Raiders, they were the first ones that hit me that I thought, wow, that's, a, that's, that's wild. They have a uniform look. They look like a gang. And then, of course, when I was a little kid, uh, uh, this is Tom Jones hit on Thursday nights. And Tom Jones was dynamite. But I remember my uncle pulling me aside and saying, Tom Jones is great, but you know he's not the king. And, uh, and that's when I started getting introduced to Elvis Presley. So those were really my – and then later on, I became one of, of course, kid of the 70s, typical teenager of the 70s, uh, where I – you had either one faction that liked Led Zeppelin – and Rush and all that stuff. And you had the other faction that liked Kiss and maybe Mott the Hoople and stuff like that. So I was I was one of those kids that uh was a big uh Kiss Army kid back in the 70s. Nice. Yeah, that was my gateway gateway drug as well in the music. Uh I remember seeing Kiss Alive for the first time as a kid and just like just the the artistry and makeup and the, the blood and you know, all that pulled me in. Big horror fan growing up as well, like you. And then, um, you know, you you brought up a memory with bringing up Patsy Cline. I remember my mother, big cat Patsy Cline fan, and she would sing, you know, crazy, and yep. you know, still would at, at karaoke night uh, to this day. You know, oh, you could. And, uh, big Elvis fan as well. So my 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 family uh, brought in some some decent music, and I had older brothers that you know, we're on the Led Zeppelin side and everything like yeah. that. But Oh yeah. All the older guys like Led Zeppelin and the who, 
you know, and stuff like that. It, it was a more sophisticated uh, musical palette than I had as as that age. Yeah, you know, I was more like Alice. I, I see Alice Cooper in the Billion Dollar Babies. It had to have a visual attached to it, yeah. unless it was just pure. Patsy Cline, like Elvis, is pure talent. When you hear people sing, most people sing like shit. Let's be honest. Most people can't. And then bands, most people are. are uh, I always go with the with the attitude that there's 85 percent of any music, whatever the genre might be, is absolute crap, just garbage. Somehow it gets over with people. Yeah. About 10 percent is good, and about five percent is special. And the truly gifted artist, somebody like an Elvis Presley or Patsy Cline, who just has such perfect, beautiful, unique voice, they flip those, and 85% of what they do is just special. You know, they all did. I mean, Elvis did his movie songs, and some of them are garbage, but the poor guy had to do some of that crap that the colonel got him locked into. Uh, and Patsy Cline, some of her early songs are, are just to make money. Anybody who's down in, I know everybody's going, every Ohioan seems to be down in Nashville these days, or Nash Vegas, as they call it. Uh, and when they go down to the Johnny Cash Museum, they ought to make a stop upstairs to the uh, Patsy Cline Museum. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, um, like, as you uh, started getting in, you know, to Kiss and, and the music scene in your teens and stuff, when was it that uh, you knew you, uh, it fell into you that you were going to be performing? I never did. I, I just didn't. Uh, I thought I'd be, and I played sports growing up. I didn't do it. I wasn't a, a, a band kid. I, you know, I just, that wasn't my thing. Nothing wrong with it. Nothing against it. Uh, you know, I played sports. I was not, a, I was not any aspirations of, of doing that. Um, again, I thought if I did anything performance wise it would be, uh, I, I wanted to grow up and be like Lon Chani. I wanted to do my own makeup and, uh, and uh, I, I'm not prosthetics because that was at that time, you know, people really know what that was, but you'd see these old famous monsters magazines where they'd show Lon Chaney with his famous uh, makeup kit, and he and he and he do these just unbelievable makeup jobs. And I thought that was that'd be something if in my pipe dreams that would have been fun to do. So, and I love pro wrestling, you know. So I didn't know what the hell I was going to do, Bill. I, I was just you know trying to struggle through life. You got to remember, I moved here. Uh, my dad got transferred here. I was supposed to be for one year. Back in 1970, uh, that didn't uh, that ended up being a little bit longer. So I was a displaced uh, East Coast kid who, from uh, you know my my best years were in uh, Bergen County of uh, New Jersey. We moved from the Bronx over to New Jersey right when I started school. I loved it back there. So I was an unwilling hostage coming out to Ohio. Ohio's been a great place to live, but um, I, I will tell you, in 1970, I, I moved here. I, I was the diversity in uh, Rocky River, Ohio. Uh, I, you know, I was a kid with an accent. Nobody knew what the hell I was talking about. Back east, I was used to having, like, I had my Italian grandparents living with me. I didn't know a kid in my in my grade that didn't have a, a, a grandma or grandpa or aunt or uncle living with them. And most of them were bilingual households. Most of them were first generation. So it was a very different environment for me to come here to Ohio. So, I, you know, I, I was just struggling along trying to do stuff with sports and things like uh, mon monster movies and, and wrestling and football. Those were all consistent from where I had been. You know, that stays the same. You know, the territories of pro wrestling, of course, change. But, you know, yeah. football and watching the same. I'd watch, you know, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman back east on Chiller Theater. I come out here. And, well, maybe I'm watching Gamera. 
you know, the flying turtle on, on the ghoul or something not quite as good as the universal package, but you get what I mean. You, you watch the basically the same movies Friday, Saturday night. And back then it was cool, of course, because every market had their own uh, horror hosts. You, you know. And then uh, like, so you, you were more into sports, like what were kind of some of your, uh, what, 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 what uh, sports were you mostly into? I love football, but, uh, and then track and field. Okay. Um, you know, I, I, I saw, uh, I remember seeing, uh, Brian Oldfield on the, uh, the superstars, the show used to be on ABC back in the seventies where they have like an example of one of the best of each sport compete against one another. I just remember that. Um, you might be a little bit younger than me, but uh, I suspect you are. But, um, in the seventies, they had a show called the superstars. So they would have, they had like, uh, uh, Ronaldo Nehemiah from the, uh, I think he played on the uh, 49ers, and he's running against um, Cal, uh, what the hell was his name? Cal Ripken Jr. or something from baseball. Then they had Kyle Roth from soccer. Then they had a boxer on. So they had different guys on that. And I remember seeing they had, uh, Lou Ferrigno was on. But I remember seeing uh, Brian Oldfield, and he was uh, he was doing things that nobody else could do. He was the biggest, fastest, strongest guy. He was the first guy to hit 75 feet with a shot put. He was a complete rebel. He'd walk up to the shot circle, smoking a cigarette, throw the cigarette down, throw 70-plus feet, blow everybody away, and walk off. I mean, he was just a, just a complete rebel. And uh, I thought he was pretty cool. So that influenced me a lot. And then you mentioned uh, pro wrestling and the and the territories and stuff. I'm, I'm, I, too, am a big pro wrestling fan. It's, I'm still a, it's a guilty pleasure sure. of mine, you know, but, uh, I think it was like, you know, I'd go out to like Richfield Coliseum back in the day, you know, and see Hulk Hogan and King Kong Bundy and, you know, around WrestleMania two is when I came in, what, who were some of the wrestlers at the time that, uh, drew you in that you were a big uh, fan of? Well, I can tell you because I was a, again, a kid back East, I first saw the WWF, which was at that time still Bruno San Martino. Um, so uh, that was what I saw as a, as a young child. And then when I moved out here, it was, of course, Channel 43 and Channel 61, but Channel 43 to get a championship wrestling. And uh, I, I absolutely bugged the shit out of my father to take me down to the old Cleveland Arena. So uh, I got to see, you know, the original Sheik, against Bobo Brazil and Pampero Furpo and uh, uh, Abdul the Butcher and uh, Dominic Danucci and Johnny Powers and those and the fabulous kangaroos and the uh, Love Brothers, Reginald and Hartford and the Mongols. But I, I will tell you, one of the things that a lot of Cleveland people don't realize is a uh, precursor to uh, WrestleMania was in 1972, there was a event at the old Cleveland Stadium called the Super Bowl of Wrestling. This was, I believe, August of 72. It was headlined by uh, Johnny Powers versus the great Johnny Valentine. And it was co-headlined by Abdul the Butcher versus the big cat Ernie Ladd, who was a great AFL football player for the Kansas City Chiefs. And uh, they had three rings set up on the infield. I went to that show. Uh, that was, uh, again, I think it was August of 72. Wow. It wasn't very well attended. There were very few people. I think it was a colossal flop. But uh, it was a precursor to these big, you know, big arena or big stadium uh, events that they tried to pull off. And, uh, uh, you know, I, again, that was the Pittsburgh, Detroit, Cleveland market, I think was what that territory was. 
Yeah, and you know, it's like it's more noticeable when they hold it in the big, the big venues, and no people people don't show oh, up. Yeah. You know. Oh yeah, that, that old Cleveland Stadium. Yeah, the old Cleveland Stadium had the worst sight lines anyway. It had the big pillars between everything. Oh uh, yeah. And the rings were a mile away from you. But I can, in my mind's eye, I can still see Abdullah Butcher and uh, Ernie Ladd brawling all over the everybody everywhere but the three rings. They went into the stands. They went between the ring all over the field, anywhere but the rings. And, and that I can still have a, a little bit of a vision from or a memory of. And the Johnny Powers, uh, Johnny Valentine was was one of the, you know, it's funny. I, most people, I look at pro wrestling as two distinct eras, okay? There's pre and post, I would say, 1980, 81, when cable TV starts to become uh, ex massive expansion across the country. You know, I knew people who had, I had new cousins back east who had, cable in the 70s um i remember being pissed we didn't get cable here and in 1977 there was a, a hbo special of kiss at budokan the first time they played japan right after the rock and roll album and uh they might have had it but it wasn't widespread like it is now yeah. so you didn't get atlanta superstation and you didn't get the other channels where you'd see the nwa at that whatever um that so and you didn't get wor to see the wwf stuff so um, with cable, to me, that's the modern era. And there's a lot of people who were holdovers, like Ric Flair. I've seen Ric Flair in person going back to the NWA, day, uh, NWA days from the 80s. So I'm live many times. He was always the less talented guy in the ring, no matter who he wrestled. And he wrestled the same exact crap match every single time. <laughs> now, it was good psychology in the matches, but... Yeah. But ultimately, but what he did was he wrestled the style I had seen guys like Johnny Valentine do 10 times better 10 years earlier than when everybody saw this. And this was new to them in the 80s. OK, well, they were all wrestling. Harley Race wrestled that way. The Briscoe brothers, the Funks. The, but Johnny Valentine was one of the toughest guys. And, and Ernie Ladd wrestled a style like that. I mean, so what was what what is old is new to a new audience. Oh, yeah. Uh, and to me, the big bang of that whole 80s era that you mentioned when, when, when cable now expands and everybody's familiar with WWF and McMahon starts by and you can pick up the AWA on ESPN on Friday night showing you the uh, the uh, what's his name? Uh, the guy that the guy and his son that ran uh, AWA up. In Ganya. 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 Yes. Yeah, yeah. So you got Vern Ganya and his son on there showing that. And they had like the early uh, they had Nick Bockwinkle. So you could see that stuff on Friday nights on ESPN. Then there were certain stations that show the Florida station where Lex Luger was the Florida state champion. We didn't get too much. Yeah, well, you did get Texas championship wrestling with the uh, Von Erichs and the Dingo Warrior became the ultimate warrior and all that. Rick. So, but to so me, I'm drinking out of right now. My ultimate right. warrior. Uh... <laughs> uh, the, to me, the big bang of all that of athleticism the best athlete, the guy who blew me away because I fell in and out of love with, with it over the years is Randy Savage. Mm. He's, he is, people can argue who the, who's the yeah. fucking go to this, the go to that. Who the fuck is the goat? Who, how do you know? I will say what he is to me is the MVP of the modern era because everybody had their best programs. If you worked a program with him, you were guaranteed to have a, probably a legendary match 
a great program with a fabulous storyline, and you're going to get terrific interviews and mics. You know, him going crazy over it. It didn't matter. It could be the the. It's funny because there's a big thing with wrestling fans about why uh, Randy or uh, Ric Flair didn't wrestle. We're getting on this pro wrestling thing. Why Ric Flair didn't the missed opportunity of WrestleMania eight? Why Hogan and Flair didn't headline it? I went to one of those uh, Hogan Flair test house show matches in I think it was December of ninety uh, one in at Richfield. It was a shit match. It was garbage because you had two guys who had three mo- moves each, waiting for the other to do something so that one can sell. Yeah, Hogan, Flair's not going to pick up Hogan. Savage could do that. Savage was big enough and athletic enough to have great matches with bigger men, but still fast enough and athletic enough to have fast matches with, with average or smaller size men. Flair couldn't do that. He's not going to pick up and slam the ultimate war. He's not. He, I mean, I saw Savage have a match with Andre on his last legs, and he still figured out a way to make the, the match interesting. Oh, um, yeah. But I saw one of those houseboats, and the best the best favor they ever did for Ric Flair was put him in that macho flair angle with uh, with Savage. And I went to WrestleMania 8 in Indianapolis. It was a great match. They did him the favor of his life because if they had had Hogan Flair as a headline, it would have been the worst. It would have been exposed both of them as being this would have been a garbage match. Oh, yeah. I yeah. saw one. It was terrible. The uh... – and, 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 you know, everybody talks at WrestleMania 3, Hulk Hogan slamming Andre the Giant and stuff. Man, I talk about Randy Savage and Ricky the Dragon Steamboat Intercontinental match. Well, of course. That was the yes. one, you know? Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the funny thing is about that, Bill, is when Savage was still alive, I've ever seen things. And Ricky Steamboat's a great wrestler. He overacts a little bit. He's a little overdramatic. But um, he would always credit Savage as being the one that scripted it out. After Savage passed away, it became, we scripted it out. No, Savage, it, it's pretty certain from old interviews, it was Savage. That's yeah. Savage. That's He just put everybody, he made everybody look great. He made the Ultimate Warrior look great in a couple of matches. He made Hogan look great. I, I saw him in 85 and 86 uh, at Richfield against Hogan, and the crowd was already divided. He was getting like an anti, anti-hero thing the way Steve Austin did years later. Yeah, yeah. He was, he was definitely incredible talent. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I gotta, I gotta bring it, you know, I could talk pro wrestling all day. Cause yeah, like, we'll I, move on from that. I'm still a fan, but I got to bring it back to, uh, you know, what I originally wanted to bring you on. Then how did, um, animals come to be then if, if music kind of wasn't something you were like into or pursuing, how did, uh, how did it come together for you? Well, you know, I was like a lot of kids. I, I went and bought a bass. I got a used bass. I used Gibson EB3 uh, bass. And I, I learned, I taught myself how to play by picking up and dropping the needle on Kiss Alive a couple hundred times. And um, I, you know, I didn't think I was going to do anything with it. And uh, it was just just a play. And uh, when I was in, uh, I went to school at the University of Toledo. Uh, that's another story. A buddy of mine uh, was way into going to the hardcore shows because Detroit was a big hardcore scene. It was not a big scene here in Cleveland at that time. Um, and Toledo's kind of a, a suburb of Detroit, it, really. I mean, they follow the Lions and everything else. So uh, I started going to some uh, hardcore shows with them. I said, shit, these guys, you know, these kids and they're they're printing their own flyers. They're making their own records. They're doing their own shows. And uh, – most of them couldn't play for shit, but they had a ton of energy 
And I love that do-it-yourself attitude. It's kind of cool. And uh, at the same time that what was happening, I could draw a little bit, Bill. I wasn't, I had no formal training, but I could draw a little bit. I like to, I like to draw because I love comic books. You know, there's the other component of that whole thing. I grew up on Marvel comic books. That was another mm -hmm. thing that was consistent from moving here. I could buy issue of Spider-Man or Captain America back east. I could buy, I could continue it right back in Ohio when I moved here. So that was very consistent for me. And um, I draw a little bit, you know, and uh, try to draw like Jack Kirby or John Romita or John Basima. And uh, at the same time, there was this big emergence of uh, independent metal labels and, and punk rock and everything in, in around 79, 80, 81. Uh, there was a, uh, this, this new dawning of these independent comic book labels and comics were starting to get sold in uh, comic specialty stores, not just on the newsstand. And everybody was a comic collector who wanted to go to one of these specialty stores because, you know, at the newsstand at the candy store, the things are all bent up and kids are rifling through them and they're, they're all messed up comics. So you get them to, you go to the, to the comic store and there's going to be some, some nerdy guy there who knows his shit. And he's going to tell you, look for this one or that one. And there's these, all these new, independent um, publishing companies coming out. One of them was uh, uh, with the Pacific Comics, where uh, The Rocketeer came out of with Dave Stevens, who was, uh, they did a movie in, in the 90s with The Rocketeer. That was one of the bigger independent things that came out. And that's where like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles came out and a lot of these others that weren't Marvel or DC. So I drew up some pages, and, and I heard there was a comic uh, company opening up uh, north of Chicago by the name of First Comics was the name of the publisher. And I drew up some pages. They weren't great, but, you know, I love Dirty Harry movies and Clint Eastwood and stuff, uh, you know, the, all the anti-hero vigilante stuff of the 70s. So uh, I uh, drew up a character that was uh, half man, half beast. It was based on, again, back to horror movies, it was based on... Uh, one of my favorites, which is Island of Lost Souls from 1932, which is an adaptation of H.G. Wells' Island of Dr. Moreau. And uh, I drew up this character, and I did a, a set of three or four pages, and I inked some. And it was kind of a dirty Harry meets Wolverine-looking character. I took him out to the guy, and he was, he was very kind to me. He was nice. He, he looked at him, and I knew. And I, I'm, I think I'm 19 or 20 at the time. And he said, you know, your anatomy is very good. Your composition, the way you see things, he says, is very good. It's like cinematic with like storyboarding. But he said, your, your technical skills with inking and your backgrounds are very rough. You got to go back and work on that. So it was fair. He gave me some positive feedback. Didn't tell me I totally sucked. But he said, you got to go work on this if it's something you want to do. And I probably was not going to do the work. But, you know, I wanted to try. I came back and I was looking at it. And no, this is about the time where Kiss starts. To, the wheels are falling off the wagon for me with Kiss. Um, I don't know when you first saw them. First time I saw them was in 76. I was 14 years old. And I begged, bullied, pleaded, everything else with an older guy, a buddy of mine around the corner, to please drive us to see Kiss because I saw the ad for uh, the Spirit of 76 Destroyer tour. Oh, I was yeah. dying to go to that. I was also dying to go to see Elvis, who played the Coliseum a month after that. That was September 76. He played his last show in Northeast Ohio, October of 76. I couldn't talk the guy into taking me to that or anybody to take me to that, unfortunately. But we went to the Kiss show. You know, so they were great. I mean, they were, they were, they were spectacular. I can't even tell you how phenomenal they were. I saw him again, the Blizzard of 78 show. But by, I saw him four times in 79. And the wheels were starting to fall off. The, the, the songs weren't heavy anymore. 
when I first saw them, when I was 14, I was like 10 years younger than everybody in the audience. It was a, it was a rock con- It was all older guys and, and their girls. It was an older crowd. By the time 79 rolls around, I'm, I'm, I can drive now. Uh, I went up to Pontiac to see him at the Silver Dome with Chief Trick. I saw him both nights in Cleveland. I saw him in, in Toledo on the last night of Dynasty, which was the last of the original four until 96. All of a sudden, it's like a, it's like a, a romper room. It's like a, a, it's like going to, I don't know, a circus or something or ice capades. Every, it's all kids with their parents. And, you know, KISS starts, they don't play, they, they start uh, cleaning up a lot of their banter and a lot of the songs they're playing. And it just was losing all, it lost its testosterone for me. It really mm-hmm. did. And then they came out with like uh, unmasked and stuff. So I see this gap at this time and there's nobody in metal who's doing anything that I think is cool looking. Um, you know, I, I think Motley Crue came up, but to me, that was a bad kiss cover band. I had no interest. In, I saw them once. I thought, that's not, you know, that, you know, yeah. that was kiss light with guys who couldn't, this guy couldn't sing and you know, but anyway <laughs> apparently apparently they've done very well over the last 40 years yeah uh, so and everybody's got a couple of good songs but there was just nothing that grabbed me so i thought i was looking at these two things i see these hardcore bands and the only one that i really loved was i love the misfits uh because they had a look and they had a great singer and they had great songs the other ones did not a few did. You know, there are a couple of bands. Uh, Negative Approach had some great songs. There's some other good ones. But for the most part, that was the one that separate. They had great songs and a great singer and a cool look. But nobody was doing that in metal. And there was no crossover stuff. So I saw the Plasmatics in Detroit in 80 or 81. And they had a great rhythm section that was as good as any metal band I'd ever seen. But they had Wendy Williams singing who was, you know, she looked cool and she did all the shit on stage. She blew the car, all that stuff. But she couldn't sing. So I just had this, it just hit me. I'm trying to do this as a comic book. I'm going to get two guys and I'm going to do a band and we're going to dress like this. And I'm going to bring these comic pages to life. Was that too long of an explanation, Bill? <laughs> so, okay. So yeah. So then you originally, I mean, I'm a big comic book fan too. You know, I, I, I should have shown you the first tattoo I ever got was actually uh, when I was in the Navy is Wolverine. Um, and then the last one I, I got, I, since I ha- I haven't been back in a while was uh Captain America's Shield. Oh right yeah, I see that. Hey, by the way, stuff. before we go any further, Bill, let me tell you this. I gotta struggle to get out of this thing. Thank you for your service. Oh, thank you, thank you. And then um, so yeah, you know, co- big big comic book fan, big Marvel fan, big, you know, I've always been like the vision. I've always liked the visual stuff. And yes. and so I, so I think we're very much alike with the theatrics and what pulls us in. Like you said, Wendy Williams really couldn't sing, but they put on that, the theatrics. Oh, it was terrific. Pulled you in yeah. and stuff. So you're, you're creating this comic book character and then you bring it to life basically on stage. And, and yeah. that's your, uh, that became your performance then. Yeah, and it and I gotta tell you, like the other thing I said, like things can define me. We played a couple of shows. I think the first show we played was uh uh November of 82. And and we weren't any good. 
But I'll tell you what we were. We put out a lot of fucking energy. And we're as good as anybody playing at night, but we had a look. Mm-hmm. And and the thing we did was, you know, the other bands are playing one, two, three, four, bah, 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 and it's the same, bah, 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 and it's the same song. They all sound the same. We came out. Now, the other two guys didn't really want to go with the look like I had, but, you know, I got them. I, I won them over over time. It was always tough to get people to get on board with me with this, with the look. Yeah. All we do is we come out, we play our four or five originals. And and then at the end, we close with uh, a cover of either Come On and Love Me or Strutter by Kiss. And we blow up a few flash pots that were way too heavily uh, powdered up or whatever. And the kids would go absolutely fucking nuts. They'd all come up because these were a lot of kids coming from Detroit. They loved rock and roll. That this is the you know this is the the state of Grand Funk and Iggy and the Stooges and the MC Five and Alice Cooper and Susie Quattro. They want you know they want to hear. They just know cool music. So we would all of a sudden we got this reputation that in fact there's an old Maximum Rock and Roll. Uh, was it Max? I think it was Maximum. It was either that or forced exposure. Where there's an interview with uh, with uh, Glenn Danzig, and he says, "How's this tour coming?" Because one of the things they asked me is, "Oh, we're going to play this show in Toledo with this band, Manimals. They play a bunch of originals, then they they play a Kiss cover and blow shit up. It's going to be cool." And that's what we did. We weren't very good in terms of playing, but again, we played with a lot of attitude, uh, and and we did. We were different, and we just always got a reaction. Now let's talk about like you know uh, the early days making that you know name for yourself and who who were some of the uh, the people that you connected with or uh, other bands. I mean, obviously you know Misfits being one, but like locally here in Cleveland, I don't really connect very well with other bands to be real honest, Bill, because I don't connect. I, you know, I'm. I'm gonna be real frank with with everything I tell you because that's just how I am. Here's, a, here's an old flyer from those old days. This is Necros Fate Unknown Manimals from December 18th, 1982. I got to turn it that way to see that. Mm. Uh, you know, we played with Government Issue, who are a decently, decent-sized band. I think they were from uh, Washington, D.C., cool guys. Uh, got along with these guys. This is the most famous show of that era. Misfits, Necros, Manimals, January 9th, 1983. It's funny. I went to see Kiss on the Creatures of the Night. We, we went up to my buddy John, my drummer, and I. We went up to, uh, uh, it was Dearborn, Michigan, the Henry Ford Center, and we saw the Misfits that night. And I met Jerry only the first time. We talked. We said, oh, we're going to play this weekend. Because they were up there on a Friday night, and that was the, the day they did the very famous uh, YB Something You're Not videotaping that afternoon. I was supposed to go up for that, but I was late. Couldn't get up there. I went up for the show that night. Then that Saturday night, my drummer John and I went to see Kiss on the Creatures of the Night tour at uh, Toledo Sports Arena, and nobody really knew if Ace Freely was gone or not at that time. And this Vinnie Vincent guy comes out. So it was very strange. And they went and played Chicago. Then on a Sunday night, they came back. We played together in Toledo. So that was a cool weekend. And then... And I think my uh, my favorite uh, team, the New York Jets, uh, beat up on the uh, uh, Oakland Raiders in the uh, second round of the AFC playoffs that weekend. <laughs> nice. And then, like, how did that relationship start then with you and uh, and Jerry and the Misfits? 
It's fine, just because my drummer John knew everybody. He had he had built uh he had an old again, like this this whole thing with punk rock where you could just do whatever you, you did your own shows in buildings, wherever you could find one. You know, everybody that I, I didn't know anybody in bands, but when I started to play in bands, all the guys that were in like uh rock bands or or heavy metal bands. They all wanted to do this. It was a very different message with them. They were all going to be like, well, uh, I'm going to do a demo. And then I'm going to ship my demo. And we're going to get signed. And then we're going to tour like Van Halen. No, you're not. Because 90% of them sucked eggs and they were terrible. But that was the, the pipe dream with most of them. We're going to be rock stars. Or they were going to be local rock stars, big guys in the little pond. And they were going to, you know, be the, the biggest band in, I don't know what, Zanesville, Ohio. I don't know. Pick a spot. <laughs> Gary, Indiana. I don't know. Somewhere. So, and they were just going to play for their girlfriends and chicks. It's just, you know, silly. And that's okay. Look, I, and they were going to play cover bands and that kind of stuff. Bill, some guys are built for show. I'm built to go. I don't fuck around. If I do something, I'm going to do it. And to the best of my ability, I don't waste time to the best of my ability. We all waste some time. But I took this very seriously. But there's a fine line when you have an image. I didn't want to be Gwar. Okay? God bless him. But I remember the first time I saw I've never seen them in concert. But the first time I saw them, I was with uh, my drummer, Dark. We were up at the uh, Motor City Comic Convention probably 20 years ago up in uh, Novi Center in Michigan. And I see a guy rollerblading around the place in like a diaper and stuff. It's it's one of the Gawar guys. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Gawar, Gawar. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Nothing wrong. Again, good for them. They've made a long career. But I didn't want to ever be seen as a you know a, like a comedy thing or silliness. And when you when you have a look, there's a fine line between not taking yourself too seriously but still being serious about what you're doing. Yeah. And then um. Like as as you guys started getting comfortable playing out, um, I had uh, watched one of your interviews uh, recently. You, you gave uh, props to uh, Chris Andrews and Chris's yes, World Records uh, for for kind of helping you along in the way. Uh, How did that relationship come together? I think probably I came. Uh, well, what happened was. The guys I was playing with in Toledo, all of a sudden we start to, we play five, six, seven shows. But I realized very quickly, it wasn't ever going to become the crossover band that I was hoping to be where I merged metal and punk and hardcore. That was my objective because I wanted to blend both audiences. They were great guys, but I knew they did not have the metal uh, capabilities that I was looking for. Meanwhile, two guys, two buddies of mine from high school, they had formed a band here. And I think they played once or twice. And, you know, they, they played for 20 people and family and friends and that kind of thing. And they, uh, I reconnected with them. And um, I, uh, they, uh, they had lost a, a, a singer and a, and a bass player. So they asked me to come do what they were doing, to fill in, to take both of those spots. It wasn't my taste. They were, I said, I'll give it a try. I gave it a try. I didn't, the songs, the songs weren't good. It was not my, it wasn't my taste. So, um, and the two guitar players were always, I, I, you know, I drive into practice with them and they'd start with this bullshit with, uh, 
your volume's too high, your volume's too high, your tunings or your tune, or just all this fuckery that just fucking around that I don't have any time for. And um, it wasn't going to go anywhere. So I asked the two of them, I said, look, I've tried your thing. It's not going to work. Why don't you try what I'm doing? And at first they were like, nah, we don't want to do that. We don't want to dress up. That doesn't, nah, that, that's, we don't, we don't want anybody to laugh at us. I said, well, hey, nobody's going to, if somebody laughs at me, I don't give a fuck. You know? <laughs> Come up and laugh at me. You want to laugh at me 50 feet in the back of the room and heck me? Go ahead. Have a good time. Yeah. Um, but after we tried doing their thing, I think it clicked. And I said, you know, you guys are playing for 20 people. I'm playing for 200. It seemed like a big deal when I'm 20 years old. And I had been on a record. Well, we had been on a, a hardcore sampler out of Mystic Records out of San Francisco called uh, We Got Par uh, We Have Power, Party or Go Home. They did a fanzine, and we got included on it. We were never an A-level uh, punk band, Bill, like uh, like a Dead Kennedys or, or a Black Flag or a Misfits or Circle Jerks or any of those ones. We were like a level B, level C. This was bands like Red Cross and uh, I forget who else was on there. Dr. No, a whole shitload of bands. It was 40 bands, 40 songs, 40 minutes. So we had a one-minute time slot. But I said, we've been on a, I've been on a record, guys, and I play for a lot of people. Why don't you come do what I do? They agreed. We tried it. I, I went and met Chris. I went up to Chris's Warped Record Store, uh, probably 84, and uh, we were talking. And he was very interested because I had gone to see these different bands up in Detroit, the Cramps, again, the Plasmatics. Uh, the Misfits had never played Cleveland. They played Akron once. I remember Glenn telling me we'll never play Ohio again because the show was so bad. There was nobody there. Um, and so we connected. And Chris was a great guy, really knowledgeable guy, really, really intelligent. And he was an entrepreneur. He was really trying to make something happen in that area. He was different than other people. Yeah. And uh, I really liked him. So we clicked. And uh, I told him what we were doing. And uh, he said, well, and he was booking things at the pop shop, which was underneath the old and, and the Agora as well. But the pop shop was the place underneath the old original Agora that burned down in 84. And um, he would have very specific Friday night was your punk hardcore, whatever night. Uh, Saturday was your metal night. Um, and if it was goth or something like that, that was over at uh, the fantasy. You know, so it's yeah. very each place had their own like personality, what they would play. And he knew I was adamant about mixing both crowds, and he thought that was very interesting. So uh, we started playing in June of 84. We, we opened exactly one show for Black Death. So Black Death, I know you had. I don't know them well. I, I don't really know them, but I know we've played with them. And I would say always thank you because our first show in Cleveland, uh, it, like playing a metal show, was we played uh, with Black Death. So uh, at some point, Chris must have said, hey, I'd like you to give these guys a try, and they agreed. So thank you to those guys. Um, after that, we never we never opened for anybody. We, we played our own shows. And in fact, I see your T-shirt. 20 years before that was used, yes, <laughs> August of 84, Manimals at the Pop Shop, August 4th, 1984. I, oh, used, yeah. the, I used the old Lon Chaney uh, Jr., werewolf uh wolfman for a number of flyers early on i always like to do flyers because the metal bands weren't doing flyers they would do stuff like there's another one from all i did i'd always do a limited number of posters as well that's from uh evelyn anchors the line change that's a year later oh nice but, and then i switched over to using the uh oliver reed uh curse of the werewolf werewolf and that kind of became our 
whatever. I don't want to say mascot, but kind of something I use it as an identifier for us. But um, because the, the, everybody's familiar with the Lon Chaney uh, Jr. werewolf face, cool image, uh, great yeah. makeup by Jack Pierce. But the um, the allegory curse, the werewolf one from Hammer Films was much more obscure at the time. But it just took off. And again, we started playing that summer. And uh, next thing I know, we, we started getting a reaction because the other two guys were very much into Merciful Fate, except Judas Priest, Scorpions. So they complimented what I, the songs I was writing. So I could fill out a song and we could make turn it into a five or six minute epic song like Blood is the Harvest, The Rattle of the Lost Souls, and do that, which is things I couldn't do with the other guys. Gotcha. So then that's like when you when you got convinced them to to come over and try what you had. That's when when the 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 right recipe was thrown in the mix and you really were off and cooking. For the most part, yes. I mean, there's always there's always shit with every band. I gotta believe. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. You know, there's always personnel. It's a shame because I will tell you that for the most yeah, it it was it was pretty good. One guy was a pain in my ass all the time. You know, you look past things and you try to make things go uh, for the good of the cause. But uh, I, I I booked everything. I wrote the shit. I wrote, the, you know, the vast majority of it. I sang the vast majority of it. It was my vision. They were good guys. Uh, my drummer, Dark, was a terrific guy. He stayed and he came back with me again well, after we took a long break, about a 10 year break. Uh, he came back with me. Uh, you know, the old guitar player was. Uh, there's always somebody. There's always somebody that doesn't appreciate book the, what you have to go in through with making the flyers, booking the shows, uh, trying to do studio time, trying to record. We did an EP uh, called Blood is the Harvest. I recorded in 85. I shopped it around. I got rejected by a few places and decided we put it out on our own. But, you know, I wasn't the scene at that time, Bill, I, I got to point this out. It was a great metal scene, great music scene in Cleveland in that era of like 80, 45, 86, 87. 87 was getting tougher, but to play places. But everybody who was anything in metal got picked up by Bill Peters, my dear friend, and Auburn Records, except oh, yeah. us. We didn't. We did everything on our own. I didn't know Bill in those years, uh, but it seemed like, uh, you know, there was Breaker, there was a Shock Paris, there was the, the, the Purgatory, there was Black Death, there was uh, Destructor, there was uh, Retro, you know, tons of bands. They were all good bands. Uh, I didn't get out to see many, but, you know, I knew there were a lot of quality bands and there were a ton of people coming out to shows. There was a lot of excitement around shows. We were always kind of on the outside. The only person I was friends with at that time was uh, Chris Andrews was my connection. And I got to be pals with Ian Shipley, who was the bass player in, uh, in Breaker. And then I got to more, meet. Yeah, you were more, you know, like DIY, you know. Yeah, because I don't need anybody paying my fuck. You know, we were going to do our own thing. I wouldn't look at all. I, we would have liked to have had somebody to promote for us, no doubt. Yeah. Like I, I you were showing those flyers and it was bringing back memories because like, you know. I never had any talent to play or perform, but I've always loved music. And, and so I, I used to promote back in the day and, and put together shows. I used to live with uh, uh, Frank Novinick, who's now in Hatebreed, uh, who was oh. in Ringworm uh, oh, yeah. back in the day. And, uh, you know, he kind of he, he, he taught me how to put flyers together where you get the band logos and you, you know, do go up yeah. to Kinko's or whatever. 
you know, so that was bringing back a lot of memories. And we lived when we lived together, we lived right down the street from Chris's Warped Records. So I would oh. always run up and pick Chris's brain, too, and yeah. you know, see what was hot and what was good. And, you know, so it's like, uh, yeah, those guys definitely, you know, played a huge role. So that was bringing back memory. People don't kids today. They take everything. Just think if oh, if everybody says yes on Facebook, they're all going to show up. No, people are be, being just kind. You got to get out there and get the word out, man. You, Not everybody's you, checking like social media. Yes, and you know, and it does. It, hey, Phil, it takes a special talent to be in promotion. I mean, uh, who was that? Doc McGee is he the guy that's with Kiss now? That's been oh, with the yeah. last oh, twenty-five yeah. years. Uh, you know, look, there's a lot of bands. It takes luck. It takes timing, because most bands, frankly, in my opinion, are just not that special or talented. Some of them have great logos. Some just hit. Some just have the right timing. Uh, you know, it's. I mean, I, you know, I say it's funny if uh, if if uh, Susie if MTV had been around when Susie Quattro came out, nobody would give a shit about Joan Jett. Everything the Runaways did, you know, she had done before. Joan Jett's just. Uh, Susie Quattro 2.0. I mean, Marilyn Manson certainly borrowed a lot from Alice Cooper. You know, oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, some in good ways. I mean, there's a respectful way of paying homage to somebody and and being derivative of them. You know, kind of, but paying homage to them and, and recognize them as an influence. And then there's others that go completely overboard and they just completely appropriate and they're just thieves. Yeah. Um, but I'm getting on a tangent, but promoting is, is a tough part of it. And that's the part of the business I didn't like because I was trying to just yep. do the artistry of it. And, uh, and I was, you know, I did the other shit because I liked to control it and I wanted to do it to the best of my ability. But the thing that used to hurt us when we put out blood is the harvest, the EP, the problem with it was I was, you know, you had to ship records out to distributors. There was uh, Dutch East and I forget the name of the other one. And they would say, give us X amount of your records you send them off. Well, then you try to get paid. Mm. <laughs> well, if you don't have another release to hold against them, say, look, pay me on this one or you don't get, pay me on band A or else I don't send you the new release from bands B, C, D, and E. Yeah. You have no leverage. Yeah. And that's that was the thing that hurt so many punk bands because that's why they're playing shows and they were selling their little, uh, they'd press up their little seven inch or maybe a 12 inch, you know, uh, maxi single or EP, you know, you sell them out of the, out of the friggin' van or the car during shows. It was tough to get that stuff out and get paid. Um, and you know, all of a sudden it's like, I'm dealing with business shit and the people weren't and bandmates who weren't appreciating this crap. Oh so yeah. No, that's to, a lot of stress. I, I, back in the, those days, it got so bad for me, you know, it was just like, um, and I wasn't even like, like really managing a band. I would book certain bands locally and, you know, I'd, I'd run out the venue and I'd put these bills together or whatever. And, and, uh, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, it, it, you know, I ended up, uh, you know, I'm 14 years sober now, but during those days, you know, I was taking the, you know, taking the edge off and it got out of control just to try and to try and deal. And I don't, I can't sit there and blame that. You know, it's like, I made my decisions and stuff back then, but you know, it was, uh, yeah, it was very stressful. People don't get like what happens, the work of putting those together. They just show up, plug in and think, you know, <laughs> it just happens. That everybody's there to see me plug in, you know, yeah. doesn't work that way. Yeah. No, no, no. That, you, 
a promotion is a tough job and that that's, that's why i do this more. now i enjoy this much more just talking about yeah. things with other people and you know getting the story in <laughs> and you mentioned something there 14 years well done yeah yeah thank you keep it going i know you work out a lot you do your jujitsu and you do all your, your stuff keep going i'm yeah i'm trying man i uh you know i don't do the jujitsu as much as i'd like but um, actually, you know, our, our fellow friend, Trevor was one of the earliest influences for me to, to check it out. I, I watched his journey and seen how, how much he transformed. And, uh, we, we have a mutual friend that just, uh, posted hello, uh, Adam Grazzi. Um, yep. he, uh, yeah, he's, he, I met him through jujitsu. He's a real good kid, real good friend of mine. Uh, yes, I know Adam. He's a great young man. Uh, I actually, I think Adam, uh, well, Adam was my, uh, my, uh, son, Alexander, my, my son, uh, wrestled over PW and, uh, he, um, I think his second year there, he met, uh, Adam and, uh, they were roommates over at PW. Oh, nice. so, so no, we know Adam very well. Good guy. In fact, I think I want to say both the guys you mentioned, I think I had a little influence on them. I'm pretty sure I took Adam, he and Alexander and I went down to see uh, Rock on the Range. I think I took him to his first uh, metal show probably 10 or 12 years ago. We went down to see Volbeat and uh, uh, In This Moment and uh, Skillet and who else was there? Lamb of God, Ghost, I think was there, but uh, Volbeat was the one we really went for. And then uh, with Trevor, it's funny – I might have had a little influence on that because he was just joining uh, jujitsu at the place where I was uh, training as my career with that or my stint with that was winding down. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. Good, good people that I've met in the community and, you know, all people that have been positive influences to help me turn my life around and try and stay healthy and stuff. But uh, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, and I want to get into, uh, it's funny too. You mentioned rock on the range, but you know, also, um, you know, it was just announced this week. It rock on the range has transformed and it's been Sonic temple the past couple of years. Okay. Just was announced this week. Your buddies, the uh, original misfits lineup are going to be headlining on uh, the Friday night down there. Oh, is that right? Oh yeah. That's very cool. Yeah. I have so, not, I have not seen them bill since they've uh, done these reunion shows. But well, might have you know, the opportunity I, now down in Columbus, you know. Well, I haven't seen them on any of these reunion shows because they haven't. I've had. I would have to buy a plane ticket to go. Yeah. You know. So now it's like, you know, I, I definitely don't want to miss this one. Yeah. That. Well, that's great. I didn't know that. Thank you for telling me. And yeah, you know, I I've kind of got the unique uh, uh, perspective of having seen them when they were in their original form or whatever or their you know original run. Yeah, having played with them during their original run, and then uh, having played with Sam Hain, and then also having been on stage with the Misfits when they did their '96, because I was in talks with uh, Jerry to be the singer at that time. Oh wow, nice! But well, didn't work uh, out. Yeah, so that around that time frame, I think I I, I recalled you were on an. Uh, mentioned it on another interview it's like that's when family stuff kind of started really you know well i i always made time to do this because it was my art though but what happened was this 87 88 
I'll tell you what. There was an. I will. I will tell you a story that happened. So, uh, let me find it here. Eighty-six. We. Um, this is uh, October thirty-first, or Halloween, eighty-six, November first. We played two shows back to back. I get. A, I. I book us at Blondie's, which is a uh, very famous metal club up in Detroit. Uh, I book us up there, and I had a choice between I think it was a band called Black Widow, and I had a chance, and then they offered me Nuclear Assault as a co-headline. I said yes, give me Nuclear Assault. It'd be a great, that'd be a great fit. It'd be a cool, cool uh, show with us there. And then I uh, Chris booked us uh, with uh, Megadeth again, a co-headline, which I know they were not very. I came to find out they weren't very happy with, uh, but you don't give a shit. Um, uh, in fact, there it is. Let me see if I can get that in there. Uh, you can see that Megadeth Manimals. Yes. Nice. And that was, and I, think they were, I think they were butthurt because they came in and they found that it was a co ed But anyway, but we played before them. But anyway, that night it was, it was, uh, I had done an interview in the scene and, uh, they took exception to us. They came in, they were trying to be wise asses with me. Not them. The the bass player who was a punk was trying to be a wise ass with me. Is that Allison um, back then? Yes, yes, <laughs> that was his name. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So uh, uh, there's a funny story about that. We'll tell you some other time. But um, <laughs> uh, we had heard they try to be uh, unpleasant. Well, I got a good relationship with him now. He's he's, um, you know. We all we all grow and you know change make changes in life. You know? He he took exception to an interview I did, so I got there that night and he told we had one crew guy by the name of uh, uh, what was it Ron? Uh, his last name will come to me in a few minutes. Great guy, and he came up to Detroit with us. Now, unfortunately, the, the nuclear assault show. What I didn't know was I booked it the same night. I'm, I'm getting out. I'm getting on a tangent, but I booked it the same night. Unfortunately. We didn't know we were going head to head with Alice Cooper at uh, I think it was Joe Lewis Arena, or it was either Cobar. I think it was Joe Lewis at the time on Halloween night. Of course, I never would have booked playing at Blondie's if I had known we were going up against Alice Cooper in Detroit on Halloween. So it was uh, it wasn't the best attended show, but it was a cool show, and the Nuclear Salt guys were great. Next night we come back here, we, we get back, to, we get to the club, and I hear, oh, there's going to be trouble. Those guys are really mad. I said, what the fuck? What are they going to do? What are they going to do? Oh, their their crew is going to their crew is going to beat you guys up. This is what the club guys telling me. Said, They're not going to beat us up. Let's go have a discussion. He goes, oh no, no, we're not going to have any trouble here. Okay, I said you're right. We have to be professional. We're not going to have any trouble here. I said, but we're not going to take any shit because I'd heard they yeah. give people shit, whatever. I got to say, it was it was uh uh. My bandmates abandoned me that night, and uh, Ron, our one crew guy, and I uh, handled the situation. It didn't get out of hand. Uh, the guy you know tried to be a wise guy, and uh, <laughs> then he reconsidered, and um, so nothing happened. But I did see Dave Mustaine. He was observing everything, and uh, Ron Lesko was the guy's name. Ron was a really good guy. He was a big fan. His, his brothers used to come see us with us with him. And he came in and helped us that night. 
And I remember one of them approached Ron and said, you know, our road, we're going to have our road crew beat you guys up. And Ron, very diplomatically, and he was a good-sized guy, could handle himself. He said, that probably wouldn't be a good decision. He was just very diplomatic, very even. So they made yeah, a good yeah. decision not to push that button. And I remember going over to Dave Mustaine. I said, hey, Dave, I'm Larry the Wolf. We got any problems here tonight? And he said, no, man, no problems. We shook hands. That was it. Um, but what happened, uh, the wheels were starting to fall off with us, Bill, because. I was going to say, uh, your bandmates beat feet and left you hanging, huh? Well, uh, the guitar player didn't want to go that on that night mm. because it was a hostile crowd. Um, it was the first time we had played all ages, and I didn't realize, I underestimated. Now, we had some uh, supporters who, uh, uh, my friend, uh, who at the time I didn't know, Metal Greg and his buddy Ivan, uh, there's pictures of us with the crowd from behind us, and it's funny. We're playing a place called, uh, Shat uh, no, what was it, Diversions? Shadows. Shadows. Uh, yeah. Shadows. And uh, it was the one and only time we were played there, and the it's hysterical. You look at the audience, they hate us. 80% don't like us when they start out. Now, by the end of the show, there are a lot of them on our side. But you see throughout the audience seven or eight or ten people in makeup. And they definitely look about five years older and bigger than everybody else. So yeah. I think they, without any any solicitation from us, we had our supporters there who I think kept kept things civil. Well, that shows um, but, the true uh, the true talent of uh, of a band when you come out and you know it's a hostile crowd, but you just you play your show, and then but before the show's over, you know you turn them over. You know it's like with any good pro wrestler. You know you you gotta to go do your, you gotta go work. You go do your job, and if they still don't like you, hey, that's all right. But if if you get a few people in there, then you. You do your, you go out there, you do your best. And I always yeah. took the approach of, and you know, and I probably, it, the interview is funny because the guy who wrote it was a guy by the name of Mark Holland, who I think was the editor of the scene at the time. And I remember him saying to me, you guys have kind of a pro wrestling bravado. I'm going to go with an angle on this. I said, all right, do what you want to do. So he made <laughs> it, you know, he went with the whole thing and he, he blew it. So it was probably a little more inflammatory of, a, of, a, of an interview than it needed to be. But it yeah. was actually, it was a cool thing to play with Megadeth. It's a shame because, uh, uh, I remember uh, a buddy of mine, by Mike Pay, said he was talking to uh, Dave Mustaine afterward. And again, I had no issue with him. He was fine. And uh, he said that uh, he said something to him, what do you think? And he said, off the record, they're fucking great. But for the record, they suck. <laughs> now, I don't know. I don't, I didn't hear that, but that was what I was told by a few people. But nice. um, but what, what became very apparent to me was there was some – I wasn't pleased with the uh, – with the chemistry that we had at that time, um, uh, the guitar player was being a pain in my ass all the time. Uh, it just was, it just was not, he was very negative and I, I don't need that, you know? So, so that's when it was time to take the uh, hiatus. Well, yeah. It, and then the drummer quit that my, uh, my buddy Dave uh, or dark, he was a very good drummer, but you know, he had always a very smart guy, very intelligent guy. Uh, he had uh, always aspired to go to medical school, so he decided to quit. And uh, we played a uh, last show in '88. I think the last two shows we played, uh, an early version of the Spud Monsters opened those two shows. Are great shows. It was a lot of fun. We had the cages. We blew shit up. It was cool. And um, but it was tough to find. You know, the scene had kind of aged out a little bit. And um, uh. Uh, Dark just decided he wanted to go back and, uh, and try to go to med school. So he did that. He went back and he went to medical school. 
And um, and then, uh, you know, we talked about uh, we talked to a few people about having them come and play with us. In fact, uh, one of them that contacted me was uh, Matt from Destructor contacted me and said, hey, I heard you need a drummer. I'd be interested. We met with him. The guitar player didn't want him, but he didn't want me to go. And I offered the old guy to come back. He wouldn't come back because they were having not, you know, just drama shit. And uh, it was clear to me the guitar player didn't want to play anymore. He just wanted to, you know, gripe about what could have been or whatever. But he also didn't want me to go on. So yeah. what happened at that time, yeah, you know, my, I got my kids at that time and I just got focused on my career and uh, I didn't really intentionally leave, Bill. It just, I felt like my band left around me and, uh, you know, I just thought maybe, maybe this is the universe telling me uh, to put away my childish, my childish things for a few years and see what happens. And so I was out of it for 10 years and, uh, and it wasn't until uh, 96, I got contacted by uh, a guy, the, the internet first started up, as you see, my email style is 96. That's my first email I've kept. <laughs> the AOL AOL, one. Right? Yeah. And um a guy contacted me by the name of Mark Kennedy, who had a, a a site he put together called Misfit Central. And he said, Hey, I heard you had some history where you played shows, you knew them, whatever. And he said, uh, do you know there's Manimal's fan sites out on the internet? And I'm still flying, trying to figure out what the hell the internet is. It yeah, just yeah. blew my mind that there were some fan sites out there that people had put together they had pictures of our albums and see, they had some photos some i'd never even seen they put up they were very primitive and i just had no idea bill i had no idea at all that anybody cared or had remembered us and then uh he put me in contact i i with uh jerry again because they were he said you know they're looking at doing a uh they've got the legal rights to perform and um they're reforming and they're looking at singers he said i think they got somebody but you know, you you ought to talk to them because they'd be interested. Jerry and I talked. It, it wasn't going to work out, but I did do some show, uh, some songs with them in May of '96 at the Odeon when they first came back, and uh, I was surprised because people afterward came up to me and they knew who I was, and I was mm. shocked. I didn't think anybody knew or cared or remembered, and um, so I got the bug to uh, I started writing songs again, and then I bumped into Dark and. Uh, and he uh, said he he would go back. He would he would give her another try with me. And then uh, there was a fellow by the name of Tim Drail who had uh, played in some bands with uh, locally. I forget the names of them. And uh, I always liked him. And he had come to see us our last few shows. And uh, yeah. I asked him about playing with us. And uh, he jumped right on. And it was great. He was great energy. And that's when we uh, started, re you know, writing and re re we wrote these songs. We got them recorded in earnest. We recorded with Don DePue and Mark Klein from Breaker. And we released the horrorcore album, and then we we did this whole relaunch of the band with new songs, new look, new staging, and uh, it was pretty cool. That was a much more, that was much more of what I envisioned for the band that lineup. Nice and and horrorcore, you know, uh, coining that uh, was definitely like, you know, putting your mark on this is this is Manimals. Well, thank you. I, what I didn't realize at the time was uh, a few years later, I, I didn't realize that became a genre of uh, of rap. There's oh, yeah. uh, there's there's a, a whole genre of rap that's around like horror stuff. That's uh, it's called horrorcore, but it came out after. You know, I coined it earlier. Oh, okay. Well, I figured it'd be more like horrorcore, like uh, metal. Well, that's what ours was, but apparently yeah. there's some others who interpret it a different way, not like the way I interpret it. <laughs> Yeah, created it, and then you mentioned uh, you know, Tim Drail being a part of the band, and then what didn't he go on to work with uh, Monster? 
Oh yeah, yeah. Well, he was working with, uh, and and it became. So we were doing. Uh, we relaunched and um, we relaunched in '99. And at that time, I have to say, you know, Chris Andrews had moved down to. I think he. I think he'd already moved down to Wilmington. Yeah. Uh, and Chris, Chris and I are still in touch. He's a great guy. He's always, he'll, he'll be a friend for life always. Uh, but this time around, Bill Peters and I connected. And Bill, in this in this third phase of the band, became a tremendous supporter. It was a great help to us. And, uh, you know, we often say it's too bad we didn't work together in the 80s. Uh, but he was a big supporter of us at the time. We came back in 99 with this Cleveland Metal Show at the Odeon. Um, we had a good night that night, and um, then we played like with Clutch at the Odeon. We started doing horror conventions in the East Coast. I thought that was a good way to hit multiple states and crowds without having to try to tour. And um, we uh, we actually, uh, you know, the Free Times used to be around at that time. Oh, yeah. Seeing the Free Times, and they used to do their awards. And I remember we got invited to play, and we got nominated for that for Best Metal Act in 2000. You know, this is we we do horrorcore come out in '99, so it was good timing. It was very good timing, and to my to my astonishment, we won that that year. You know, you had some tough bands. You had Mushroom Head in there at that category at that time, and you know, they, everybody knows how successful they are and how big they were. Yeah. So we had some momentum. Unfortunately, uh, we played for a few years, and unfortunately, one of the members. Uh, we used to play football in college and did some other stuff. Uh, he uh, started to have dark, started to have some very uh, serious back problems and neck problems. Mm. And he also and had a problem. drummer. That's that's it. You know. Well, and before all that occurred, when we came out, uh, you know, we tried to keep everything very private. He was diagnosed with leukemia when we came back in '98, mm. and played through that. So, you know, you talk about adversity. There's a little bit of adversity. Uh, and then uh, another member. Now th these are young guys. These are guys in their thirties and forties. The other guy has open heart surgery. So, I mean, and you know, unfortunately, that's life. Stuff happens like that. Yeah. So we were starting to miss opportunities that we couldn't play, um, even though we had momentum with hardcore and with this new stage and everything. And we were doing some cool shows. And we were playing Detroit. We, again, we played some East Coast shows. And we probably played the Odeon three or four times. And unfortunately, I was at, I was at a, in a position where I either had to make a decision. Do I replace one or two people and keep going? Or do I wait for them to heal up after each procedure? Try to do it again. In fact, one of those shows here, you mentioned uh, Ringworm before, right? Yeah. There's a show from 99. at uh, We had Boulder. Who went on to become, you know, Jamie from Midnight? Oh and yeah. I don't know if your friend was in the band at that point, Ringworm, but that was. A cool oh yeah, show. I believe he was. Yeah, because Euclid Tavern. I think. Uh, I know there was one show they headlined at Euclid Tavern when we were living together, and I got to introduce him. And uh, I, I did that. This was during like and taking it back to pro wrestling. This was back during the Attitude Era, so I did like the the New Age Outlaws like uh, style introduction to Ringworm, but I changed the words around a little wow. bit, you know. It was, you know, it was a good time. That's it's funny you say that because uh I yeah, this was 99. Uh it's and Don, actually Don Foose came out and did a couple pro mag songs with us that night when we played that show. Um Don's a great guy, great guy, and great talent. 
Um, it's funny you say because I remember uh, Tony Erba. I remember seeing oh, yeah. him playing a band, and uh, he did like a, a takeoff on the uh, Ravishing Rick Rude. Uh, <laughs> nice. Something like that, but it was yeah, cool. Yeah, so yeah, that's yeah. A, that was a good idea that you did that that way. And you know yeah. the attitude. You know what's funny with that, era, Bill? I tell people all the time. This is a, this is another sidebar. It's funny because I remember Steve Austin and that stuff with because he's kind of the, the poster guy of that era, right? Um, Savage had been an anti-hero ten years before. I mean, yeah. he just was. He was getting a, as big a pop as Hulk Hogan, you know, because kiddies liked Hulk Hogan. People who are a little bit older said, oh, shit, this guy's an athlete and he's wild. We're on to Savage. But, you know, it's funny. You probably remember stunning Steve Austin in oh, the yeah. AWA. And then you remember him as the Hollywood blondes with the long hair with blind. And his hair was thinning. Yeah. And like a lot of guys are there, like, what the hell do you do when your hair is thinning and you're a blonde guy, a bleach blonde guy in pro wrestling? Well, at that time, the UFC was hitting in 93. And you had a guy by the name of Tank Abbott who the, the pro wrestling was always trying to create a heel, right? Yeah. You need villains for the, you need, like you mentioned, you need villains. You need, like, that was Hogan's thing. Trot out big John Studd, Paul Orndorff, King Kong Bundy, whoever the hell else. Um, they organically had this guy, Tank Abbott, who came out with a shaved head and a big goatee. And everybody was talking about that guy. Isn't it funny that a guy by the name of Steve Austin gets a makeover and becomes bald with a goatee, and then they bring a guy named Goldberg into the other league, bald with a goatee, wearing yeah. MMA gloves and wearing that 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 uh, minimalistic black trunk, black boot, black. They take Abbott, and then all of a sudden, every guy I knew who was struggling with that that uh, that mullet that they were hanging on to that's thinning, you know, some guys are blessed with great <laughs> hair, other guys it starts to thin. What the hell do you do with it? All of a sudden, overnight, there's the look. Shave your head, get a goatee. That's half the popularity of that thing. Oh, yeah. Timing. Yeah. Timing. And, you know, speaking of, uh, you know, uh, the athletes of pro wrestling and stuff like that, but let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, some animals. You know, you decided, you know, uh, it, it's time to, to, to move on. It, it comes to an end. But what have you been doing? Because you're still a very athletic person. You're been still in, in great shape. What what does uh, Larry Thank the you. Wolf? Uh, what, what's a Larry the Wolf regimen like now today? Um. Well, I'm I'm uh, 62, so I uh, I try to do. I try to do everything I can to slow the aging process, Bill. So, um. I treated everything with band stuff over the years, all business. So I don't drink. I've never drank. I don't eat meat. Um, I just have different habits. And um, I try to, again, slow the aging process as much as I can. And uh, I try to compete as often as I can. So if I go back around the time that, that guys were getting Unfortunately, life was happening and they were getting injured or, or having surgeries or illnesses. I made a choice instead of replacing anybody. I mean, Bill Peters and I were talking about trying to take this to Japan. You know, we did play Wacken in 2012, but there was like from 2007, <laughs> it became very hard to do shows because one guy in particular was having a lot of surgeries. And then Tim Drill 
couple, you know, Tim's, Tim's my dear pal. He moved with his job, which was a label job up to Detroit. Then he moved out to work with Coffin Case in LA. Then he got the gig with Monster, like you're talking about. So, mm-hmm. you know, Tim would fly in to do a show, but you know, that's a hard, that's a hard way to do it. Yeah. Uh, and that's when Sean Vanek started playing with us the last several shows that we had played. But, um, so around this time, I made a decision. I'm not going to replace guys. I'm not going to. It's not going to be a career thing. I was always very realistic, but I did want to keep it going. But I decided loyalty is big with me. I stayed loyal yeah. to the guys that would play with me. So somebody had a surgery, or whatever. I chose to forego opportunities to stay loyal to them. Um, but at the same time, like my oldest daughter that you met. She had a great gymnastics and track career, so you know, she she was on the last. Uh, she went to Magnificat, so in fact, she just got inducted in their athletic hall of fame last year. So yeah, congratulations to her. Job. Thank you. She, yeah, my, my kids, God bless them, they've done some really cool stuff. So right around that time, you know, my kids, I've got a fourteen year spread on my on my kids and their age. You know, I can either go book a show or I can do something like that. You know, so my kids needed me at yeah. that time. We took my daughter. She she competed all over the country with USA Gymnastics. Then my son was a three-sport athlete. He played football, track, and wrestling uh, at Westlake. And then he went on. He wrestled at BW. My youngest one is uh, was always doing multiple sports. And then she, uh, um, she and I would do track meets together. And I gave her a javelin, a little plastic turbo javelin when she's a kid. And uh, she did her gymnastics and her lacrosse and her volleyball and the other sports. But uh, we would do uh, USA track and field uh, and AAU events over the summer. And she just kept getting better. She had a cannon. She had a good arm. When my son was playing football, we'd give my daughter, the little one, a ball. And she could just throw the thing. She just had it. She just had an arm. So we gave her a javelin. And, you know, long story short, she's a uh, she get paid to throw javelin down from Marshall University. Um, it's so at that time, and then what I did, I didn't want to be one of these dads who sits in the in the uh, stands and, you know, the older they get, the better they were. Yeah. Telling, you know, tall tales and shit of what they did. Yeah, I don't have any, I, I didn't, I had unfinished business when I was younger, Bill. I competed for St. Ed's and I competed for North Olmstead, but I didn't do everything I wanted to do. So I always had unfulfilled athletic ambitions and things I felt I needed to get back to. And, you know, for in your 30s, I thought, well, time's passed me by. Then I realized in my 40s, uh, a guy that was, that was working with me introduced me to, to grappling. So I started doing uh, grappling competitions. I did, uh, I think I did four or five years of uh, a Naga. Now, you know, there's a lot of competitions now, and there's a grappling school, uh, you know, in every community, it seems. Yeah. They're almost becoming like CBSs and uh, – <laughs> and, uh, you know, every, every, every community now has a CVS, uh, a funeral home, a tattoo parlor, a liquor store, and, and a and a auto parts, B, an auto parts, and a BJJ. You know, whatever. Yeah, but, yeah, and, yeah. You know, that's cool. That's cool for the expansion of the sport. Uh, karate places were kind of like that in the seventies and eighties and nineties. But you know, when I started, it kind of found me. So I started again. I didn't want to be one of these dads who's just you know, talking their nonsense about what they did when they were younger, because the ones who did the most say the least. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, they still do. So, uh, again, it found me. I started doing uh, competitions, I think, when I was uh, 44. And um, mm. and then I also I, I bumped into somebody taking my daughter to one, my youngest daughter to a, to a, a USA track and field meet. 
I took her to one, I think it was down in Virginia, and I saw some masters throwers. And I didn't realize that anything 30 and over, there's there's masters, a whole uh, league with that. Yeah. So I went back and uh, I used to throw shot put when I was a kid. So I started throwing shot put again. So I was doing the grappling and throwing shot at the same time. And then I'd go and I'd do some uh, kickboxing, but mostly boxing. I don't like to kick. But uh, and I, I was doing that a lot. Um, and I got the bug to compete. So that with competing, I didn't have to rely on anybody. With a band, it's always got to be collaborative. Yeah. Unless you're uniquely talented, like an Elvis Presley, which I sure as hell am not. Nobody is. Or Patsy Cline or someone, or Sarah Brightman or, a, or, a, or, a, or a Andrea Bocelli or something like that. Unless you're uniquely talented with this absolute gift. Bands are a collaboration. You got to put up with egos and bullshit and people and disproportionate amounts of work being done and, and giving up some control. And it's just attitudes and ego and greed and all this other crap. So I've got that on one side and then people getting sick on me because we, we got along well in that era, the band. Or I got my kids and I got competition that I don't have to depend on anybody on. Yeah. So I, I just, I went back and that, it was the right time and the right place in my life to go back and do competition. So since uh, probably 07, I've done well over, I don't know, 56, 50, 60 uh sanctioned competitions either with grappling for North American Grappling Association, but I haven't done one of those in 10 years, or uh, USA Track and Field. I think I've competed in 11 states now. Gotcha. Nice. Well, you 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 mentioned uh, North Olmsted. I didn't realize uh, that you were a North Olmsted uh, uh, alumnus, because I'm class of 91. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, uh, <laughs> I was 79. No, no, but I was one of those. I was one of those. Uh, I'm not a big guy now. I'm. I'm. In fact, I'm. I'm small for in terms of shot put and, and track and field. I'm. I'm almost always uh, at a size disadvantage. But I like beating big guys. Uh, but I'm the same size since I'm 14. So I. I just. And my dad was a bigger man. He was a big guy. So I thought I was going to keep going. So I just got to my full size when I was 14 and. Uh, so I was a good sized kid when I was 13. I was a pretty good player. So I was one of those kids from North Olmstead that, uh, you know, St. Richard's church parish where my CCD oh, yeah. teachers, uh, my CCD teachers, uh, had recruited me because they had sons playing football over at St. Ignatius. And then my priest, Father Tom Flynn at the time said, no, you gotta no go. way. Tom Flynn, oh, yeah. <laughs> my oh, priest yeah. too. He ended he up being at, at St. Clarence. Well, I had him from the St. Richard's days and the the Emerald Ball and all that stuff. Yeah, he and my parents before my parents got divorced were very very close. So in fact, uh, I he was a uh, shout out to Tom a, Flynn. I never thought I'd be saying that on this podcast, but yeah. he's passed on. Tom Flynn. Yeah, he has. Um, but, uh, but yeah, he, he, so I was one, and he said, "No, nah, you got to go to St. Ed's." So you know, I got recruited over there. I went to St. Ed's one year and then uh, my parents got divorced and I ended up back because I lived on, since you know, North Olmsted, I lived on Revere Drive in the back of the cul-de-sac next to the, uh, that where the creek was in the back parking lot of North Olmsted High School. Okay. Yeah. I grew so, up in Brenton Ridge. Oh, I know. Yeah. I, I knew a kid, there was a kid over there. I used to know his name was Brooks Cook. Brooks Cook. Brooks Cook was the best lifeguard ever at the Brenton Ridge pool. Oh, is that right? Yeah, my dad ran the pool there, and Brooks was 
all-time favorite lifeguard up there. He was like our Jeff Spicoli back before uh, Jeff Spicoli was cool. He <laughs> and I bonded. You know, he was a big monster fan and a big comic book fan. So it's funny because I, he and what did I do? I traded him. <clears throat> I got some uh, NFL posters. You know, I, I grew up as you know. I, I don't follow the NFL as, as much anymore. I don't go for the woke bullshit. Um, yeah. In anything, I don't go for the woke shit in anything. And there's too much of that in music and entertainment. But uh, that's another story. But, um, you know, at that time, I was a very big uh, Jets fan because, I, again, I, I had an uncle took me to see the Jets. I, I had the uh, benefit of seeing, I saw Joe Namath play Johnny Unitas in the Colts at Chase Stadium in October of 1970. So I stayed, I stayed a uh, Jet fan. And I remember I had ordered these. You could get four posters for like five bucks I have uh, Sports Illustrated. So I got Joe Namath, Don Maynard, Matt Snell, and I was trying to figure out a fourth one. And my uncle Eddie said to me, "Get Bob Lilly. He's a great player. He's 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 good. I wish we had him." So I got Bob Lilly, and I think I traded uh, Brooks a Bob Lilly poster for like a Spider-Man comic or something. But he was a cool kid, nice yeah. kid. Yeah, real good guy. Wow, it's uh so so much uh so much more to talk about. But I got to get ready and start wrapping up with you. Um, but yeah, we'll have to, uh, we'll have to get together and go down some, uh, North Olmstead stories. Cause, uh, well, real quick, father, Tom Flynn, I, I, my, my parents were big at when, when we formed St. Clarence church, they were big on, you know, putting that together. That was over closer to Bretton Ridge area. Yep. yep. And father Flynn used to do the, uh, the cabarets and perform and sing and stuff. And my mom would perform and sing. And then she got us some of the CCD kids. So I had to get up there and perform and sing. And uh, we were supposed to do a number with, with, with father Flynn. And uh, he, uh, he, he would, he would, he would hardly show up to practice because he was busy running the parish or whatever. Yeah. And then we're, then we're doing like a dress rehearsal and he messed up. He's like, I apologize. I apologize. Let's do this again. And and me being who I was, I was like, well, maybe if you showed up to practice once in a while. And I got the the nice jab to the gut by Father Tom Flynn. So, <laughs> well, I got to tell you, it's funny. Uh, you probably remember them when he was because I knew him when he was a little bit younger. Uh, I, I, it sounds like I got about 10, 11 years on you. Um, he would come in. This is again St. Richard's. He would come in and uh, he'd walk in to CCD, and he'd ask you a question. And, you know, you just see kids bumming out because they did not want to be called on. And and if you said, yeah, he'd look at you. What did you say? <laughs> you know, he'd get, he'd, get, he'd just look at you and you knew, yes, father. But uh, <laughs> he'd come over and he'd stand next to me, hit me on the shoulder and said, how you doing, Larry? Sometimes he's calling Lawrence, but I'd say, Larry, it's, uh, okay, I'm doing well, father. Thank you, father. And he, went, he was just. He had an influence. He was a great guy. He really was oh, a yeah. really nice guy. And uh, so he had the influence on me with, with school and stuff. But again, uh, what you know, like a lot of families went through some family things. I ended up back in North Olmstead. I got to tell you, that was culture shock for me, Bill, going from the uh, regimented St. Ed's. I, I probably needed to stay there because North Olmstead was a fucking free-for-all over there. Oh, yeah. It was, I, you know, there, were, there was a smoking courtyard. There were... People, you know, I'd see kids. Yeah, that's probably where my brother was hanging out. You, I don't know if you knew any Baileys back in the day, but you know, <laughs> I don't know. I was, I was pretty miserable, so I kept to myself. I, I, I did my thing, and uh, I, I stuck to myself. You probably remember Tom Peepers then, right? Oh yeah, 
I remember that name. Bruce Peepers. Bruce Peepers. Okay, yeah, I remember that name. Yeah, Coach Peepers. Coach, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was my senior year that uh, a couple of classmates uh, lit it on fire and we had to go to the IX Center. I remember when that happened. It was the front, uh, the whole front of the school was destroyed, as I recall. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I remember when that happened. Yes, I do remember when that happened. And again, I lived across the street from the back parking lot. So, uh, you know, we saw a lot of shit going on back there. It was, was was like I said, it was culture shock going from uh, one to the other. I do have to say, as we're wrapping up, this has been a lot of fun, Bill. Thank you very much for having me. You know, I, I don't know. We we bounced around a lot of stuff. I spent more time on, on wrestling than we when we probably should have, but it was a fun conversation. <laughs> I gotta tell everybody, I put this out this past year. This studies in Scarlet 2 C D anthology. I gotta tell you, I've had such great support. So I didn't want to miss an opportunity to tell everybody who has supported it, whether it's been on Spotify and or on the C D or on Bandcamp. Oh yeah, I've been thank you very Spotify. much for supporting it because and there's two guys who helped me for 10 years. Uh, Sean Vanek was after me to get this thing wrapped up. He remastered everything. And Tony Alberts pulled out old tapes, live tapes. They baked the old uh, masters from blood is the harvest. We found some old demos from the 82, 83. Sean was great. He kept after me. And the other fellow was a fellow by the name of Argyle Goolsby who plays in the band blitz kid. He kept after me and we did, he did the graphics for me, but I want to tell everybody out there, just when I think you forget about me, I appreciate all the support on our music. And, and if we've given you a little bit of uh, joy or, or, or uh, you know, I write songs from the perspective of always being angry, Bill. So if it somehow is uh, connected with some people out there, uh, and I, I hope it did some good for you. And I hope you, uh, I hope everybody out there that listens gets motivated to go out and do something. Like I said, keep moving, keep improving. You've only got one life. As the great yep. Steve Prefontaine said, to do any to give anything less than your best is to sacrifice the gift. Every person has a gift, so they got to get the fuck out and do something, whatever yeah. it happens to be, whatever their talent happens to be. Yeah, I agree, hundred percent. Hey, before we uh, get ready to wrap up, I want to ask you a couple of questions that I normally ask people on, and uh, this one I'm gonna, I'm, I'm definitely gonna want to hear as we were just talking about uh, school and. And the culture shock, but uh, what class do you feel should be mandatory before graduating high school today? Well, they used to call it civics, but I think what they should should have is I think it should be mandatory. Uh, there should be a few. One should be uh, personal finance, because schools teach kids. Uh, they they program them early on to go to college. Look, I got two degrees. I got a master's degree too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I was the first uh, male in my family. My dad was a Marine. His 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 brother, my uncle, was a Marine. My mother's two brothers were both in the Army. I was the first male to finish college, but I was also the first not to go into the service because I was, you know, programmed from an early age. And my parents were. My mother was, you got to go to college. You got to go to college. They didn't tell you you could really do both if you wanted to. Yeah. But it was... Uh, I, I would say that they have to take personal finance and civics, uh, but personal finance, learn how to, instead of just uh, working for somebody to make money, how to make money work for you, you know, yeah, you know, r- rather than always getting into the system of you got to go to college, you got to incur a bunch of fucking debt, 
you got to, you know, but the other shit is that is, is uh, critical thinking. They should all learn how to do an argumentative paper. But, you know, my oldest daughter is a school teacher, and uh, I see a lot of what goes on. And, uh, again, having kids uh, a wide uh, age span, I am uh, not encouraged at all by what I see going on. And that's because uh, the government took over and created the Department of Education in 1977 under Jimmy Carter. And since that happened, our ranking in the U.S. for our kids with, uh, national, with international rankings of our students has declined nearly every year. Oh, yeah. We used to be number number one in the world before the government got involved and took it over. The dumbing down of America. Right? Yes. Well, yeah. there's a couple great books uh, about Charlotte that. Charlotte Iserbert, I believe, was her name, right? I'm Charlotte, sorry? Charlotte Iserbert or something like that, I think, uh, is uh, one of the authors that wrote like a book that used to work for, I think, the Reagan Department of Education. Kind of oh, yeah, came well, out as like a whistleblower. Well, I know it was created by Carter. I believe it was 77, but they should have them read all the books like, uh, you know, of course, Orwell, Ray Bradbury, William Golding, Lord of the Flies, all those books, because I think we're, uh, yeah, oh, we're yeah. in a bad place right now. And have them read books like authors like Heather McDonald, the great Thomas Sowell, who's a national treasure. He's in his 90s. He's still writing. Nobody has him oh, on yeah. anything because nobody wants to try to compete with him intellectually. Uh, Charles Murray, who wrote The Bell Curve in the 80s and also wrote Coming Apart about 10, 12 years ago. She read a book called The Eternal Treblinka. One of the most important books, Alan Bloom. You didn't know I was going to be prepared for this, did you? The Closing <laughs> of the American Mind. It's what wow. they at universities. So is that enough? Oh, that's good. And yeah. Have a, kid, no. have a kid do something important. They all should have something. They all, you know, don't have them go play kickball or whatever. For Show them something meaningful. Every kid should have a sport or have, or if their thing isn't sports, go do music or go do drama club or go do, go do science club. Too many parents get involved with themselves rather than getting involved with what their kids are going to do. Oh, yeah. Or yeah. they get over-involved. You know, let the kid oh, yeah. be a kid. I may, I, you know, I mean, I made some of those mistakes in the past, you know, where it's like, you know, um, you want to live vicariously through your kids. And uh, my youngest does jujitsu now with me oh. and I stay out of it. It's her journey. You know, she does it more than me. She she can triangle the hell out of her dad, you know, and uh, she's been getting into boxing. Um, but I made the mistake when she got into wrestling. Uh, we went back because I wrestle in North Olmsted High School. It's never that good. My friends oh. that kind of actually dragged me into it, but uh, because I was more there for comedic relief. But uh, um, you know, I was one of those dads on the side. You know, when she was, and and I almost ruined it for her. But thank God when she got into jujitsu, she had some good coaches, and they said, "You're going to shut the fuck up, and you're going to let me coach." And I'm like, "All right." And the more I've been on my journey, and and you know, with sobriety and everything like that, you know, I, I realized that uh, the the more I learn, the less I know. And my daughters uh, have taught me how to be a better man every every day. You know, they're teaching me how to be a better father. So it's a Bill, huge, huge blessing. That's an outstanding statement. And what you just said is is absolutely key. The more you know, the less you realize, the more you realize how much you don't know. That's yeah. true in grappling. I mean, you see any good grab once they start to understand what it is, like, holy shit, you become awareness of what they don't know. That's life. 
that's but if you had that epiphany good for you good on you and it sounds like you're doing a great job with her and don't yeah. keep her into boxing the bo box you know grappling is yeah, great she, i love grappling but yeah but she just started nothing... get, kind of getting into boxing she wants me to order new pink gloves for uh christmas so i'm like all right i got gotcha. you oh you yeah. yeah yeah that's great and then um who are three people who've inspired you and you can credit for making you the person you are today? <laughs> three people. My wife, because she's encouraged my, uh, she supported my interests and I do some weird shit. <laughs> I, 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 not to me, but I, I'm, I'm wired differently. Yeah, you're probably wired differently. You know, it, it's, it's, oh, yeah. you know, I, 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 I'm just different, and she's always been supportive of me. So that as that has allowed me to be who I'm going to be, who I was always meant to be. Uh, my uncle Ed, again, I, I mentioned him earlier. He was like my older brother. Um. Took my first Jets game when I was a kid. Introduced me to Elvis Presley, when nobody understood, you know, uh, why I liked monster movies and things like that. He'd sit down with me. We'd sit back back east. We'd sit down and uh, eat pretzel rods and eat devil dogs and uh, drink ginger ale and watch uh, Chiller Theater, whatever it happened to be, you know, House of Frankenstein, uh, Curse of the Curse of the Werewolf, you know, Mummy's Tomb, whatever whatever monster movie was on. He would sit and indulge me. We'd watch that together. He'd buy me famous monsters magazines at the at the candy store. He'd buy me a comic book or, a, you know, a hunch. In fact, I've, I think I've got one here still. Okay, so there's one from, you know, that's the old Aurora, Hunchback of Notre Dame. You know, when oh, you're a nice. kid, they, get, you know, you don't have latex paint. You get the enamel paint, like four colors, at the friggin' uh, at the drugstore. So, of course, what do you do with any of the monster models? You, you paint it up and you, you slap it together and you throw blood everywhere all the thing. So I just figured I since we're showing off, showing off toys, it'd be appropriate for me to pull out my oh yeah, my Lone Chaney Wolfman uh, little, Bust. sitting oh, yeah. over here on the side over here. But, Very uh, cool. Yeah. So, and then, uh, okay, so that's two. One more. Uh, Hmm. Yeah. It's always hard with the third one to narrow it down. I'll I'll say this. I have to lump them together. My children, because I don't think uh, Jordan Peterson says this that uh young men don't become who they're supposed to be until they get married and then really until they have children. Uh it it matures you it it focuses you on what's truly important now maybe some people don't need it but i think most young men need that they yeah. need things to help them focus i mean a lot of things but i mean you know i never met elvis presley but he's been an influence i miss him every day i wish i the god i have i have seen him uh you know i you know i sometimes i had you know uh, i i learned from my father some things that were good i also learned some ways not to be yeah you know so it's hard to pick three. Yeah. But, gotcha. but definitely my wife, my uncle Ed, and my kids. Awesome. 
And then um, any message you have for our military members that are currently serving overseas? God bless you. Thank you for your service. Stay safe, and I hope you all can come home as soon as possible. Uh, Trump was bringing everybody home. Current guy, I don't know what the hell he's, well, I know he's, he, you know. I'm not, yeah. everybody who's in the, support, you know, entertainment thing, I'm not. I, I'm just, a, I'm just a cat doing his stuff, all right? Uh, yeah, I can't believe how many people that were think, consider themselves rebellious are the biggest oh, yeah. conformists on the fucking planet. They get behind this bullshit that's going on now. Oh yeah, I've had I've had episodes taken off of uh, YouTube, um, you know. It just uh, I I'm we're 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 very much on the on the same page on a lot of things, Larry. I think uh, we'll definitely have to set up a. Uh, and I know you don't like people much, but hopefully one you know one time me and you can get together, we could talk about Brooks Cook and you know Father Flynn and you know yeah, and then you know, you know what we what we would do differently, uh, you know. Yeah today well bill that would be great no i i tease i just i i'm more of an introvert with you know i, I like to talk and tell stories but uh no but of course we'll get together and this has been a lot of fun i will tell you i always adhered to what elvis presley said in 1972 we, he played an unprecedented four sold out shows in three days at Madison square garden there's a famous press conference before that those uh, four shows were an in, a reporter asks him what what his views are on the Vietnam War, and he looks at her and he says, "Honey, I just assume keep my opinions on that to myself. I, I'm just an entertainer." And she says, "Well, do you think all entertainers should keep there?" And he says, "No, no, they do what they want to do." He says, "I'm just choosing to keep mine to myself." I always adhere to that, Bill, and I, but I'm not a professional entertainer. Yeah, when I was active, because you try to be respectful of. It's a 50-50, we're led to believe country. And but there's so much, there's as much propaganda going on right now for one side as there was during with Lenny Riefenstahl doing this stuff for the Third Reich 80 years ago or mm -hmm. 75 years ago. I mean, it's there's so much propaganda on one side, nothing is objective anymore. So no. very few people are allowed to make so when we talk about what you would preach in school, kids are not thought to. To, to think critically or to question anything. I mean, God yeah. knows they can't do it at college campuses. Hey, you read know, Thomas Paine's Common Sense or something, right? Yeah, yeah yes. I mean, I, we're fortunate. My daughter is down and my youngest one's down at Marshall. And, you know, fortunately, they're about as non-woke a school as you can get. And they're objective. You get different views. Some of the places, you know, we're doing our recruiting visits with her. It was out of control. You know, we knew five oh, yeah. seconds. We knew five minutes after we got to the campus when they start talking about safe zones and, and that kind of bullshit, you know, that's, that's not what she's there for. You know, you, they're, they're supposed to be there to hear different views, get a 360 yeah. view of the world, hear different ideas, challenge things, question things, think critically for themselves, not get programmed into bullshit. But again, I always tried to hear the fact that I, I wanted to be respectful of people from, from different views. It's well past that though. Yeah. This is yeah. this is a matter of now everybody you know them fucking up people's lives. So it it's just always been curious to me because however people feel about them or, or not, it's always curious to me. I see musicians all being such conformists when Trump is the most punk rock motherfucker on the planet. 
<laughs> and he was. He came out and he, and, he, and, he, and, he, and he's calling shit. He's calling bullshit on both sides. That's exactly who they who rebellious people should admire. Somebody oh, yeah. calls out the rats on both sides. When you're hated by both sides, you're probably doing something right. Oh, there's my oh, yeah. uh, my roadie wristband. I train with. I got to give this guy a plug because he's a dear friend. Justin Rohde, uh threw for Team Canada in uh, the Olympics. I think it was 2012, and he has a, a throwing academy out in uh, Rootstown, Ohio. So uh, he was nice enough to. Uh, take me under his wing and uh, I train with him. So I had to say hello to my friend, Justin Rohde. And if anybody's got any sons or daughters uh, uh, or have any aspirations themselves to uh, be a thrower, he runs a terrific Academy out there. You got a world-class guy that's right here in Northeast Ohio. Nice. Nice. All right. Well, Hey, Larry, man, it's been great talking with you. And we, this definitely won't be the last time we, we, we talk. Um, but uh, before I wrap up, I got one last favor. I want to ask you. You uh, mind cutting a promo ID for the show? Just introduce yourself and you're listening to today's boondoggle. I'd be happy to. Awesome. You tell me when and I'll go. Yeah, whenever you're good. Dig it, cats. This is LTW and I'm here with Bill on the boondoggle show. I hope you listen. Awesome. Larry. Thank you so much, buddy. It was really good talking with you. I'm going to send you a few things off, off, offline, but uh, yeah, let's, let's stay in touch, man. Good to get to know you better. That'd be uh, my pleasure, Bill. Thank you for everything. And uh, I had a great time with you tonight. Riding ships, good luck to Penny, had a thousand suture lines, gave you all I had to give to take you to the other side.
Hey, baby, this is Double D, also known as Dream Daddy. And I gotta tell y'all something about our new sponsorship here at today's Boondoggle. And the name is Dream Nutrition. So if you're looking to empower your human vitality, well, then you come to the right place. With over 12 years of combined experience in cannabinoids and terpene products, Dream Nutrition products include CBD oils, patches, proteins, and so much more. The endocannabinoid system is believed to have involvement in regulating physiological and cognitive processes, including the immune system, appetite, pain sensation, mood, memory, and in mediating the pharmacological effects of cannabis. Support this veteran-owned and operated company today, and today's Boondoggle fans will receive 10% off their orders when using the promo code Boondog10 at checkout. That's B-O-O-N-D-O-G-10 at checkout. So go to the link. That's dreamnutrition.com forward slash discount forward slash Boondog10. And remember, dream is not spelled like dream daddy. It's spelled D-R-E-E-M. And start saving today because you deserve to feel your best. And you know that's right. So tell them Dream Daddy and your brand from today's Boondog sent you. Thank you for listening once again to today's Boondoggle radio show. Please be sure to check out our website, domaincle.com or todaysboondoggle.com for more shows and check out our archives. Follow us on social media at Today's Boondoggle on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter for more information about this podcast. And please support us on www.anchor.fm forward slash Today's Boondoggle as well as on our GoFundMe and Venmo. Be sure to subscribe, comment, download, and listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spreaker, and all the other podcast platforms out there. Please email us with any questions, suggestions, and comments via todaysboondoggle at gmail.com. Leave us some five-star reviews and help spread the word. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for tuning into this week's today's boondoggle domain cleveland entertainment is a veteran owned and operated cornucopia of nonsensical shenanigans you can find interesting interviews music news and information and just about everything else in between thank you again for supporting sharing and tuning into today's boondoggle